a pleasure to introduce our first guest on the program today. Corinne Jelina is joining us from New Brunswick this morning. Corinne is a PhD student and researcher in the Faculty of Business Administration at the St. Mary's University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. She joins us from New Brunswick today to talk about a piece that she wrote recently for theconversation.com entitled Sexual Misconduct, Abusive Power, Adultery, and Secrecy. What I witnessed in Canada's military. Karin Jirina, good morning and welcome to our program. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a pleasure. Uh, you are a veteran of Canada's armed forces. You were 10 years in the forces. You were an air traffic controller. So is it safe to assume, Karin, you were a veteran of Canada's Air Force? Yes, I was. Uh, tell, us I why, tell us why you joined the forces in the first place, please. Uh... <laughs> To make a long story short, um, I actually joined twice. So I joined uh, right out of high school. I uh, went to RMC. I was medically released. and But that drive to join the military had, hadn't left. And so years later, I rejoined uh, as an air traffic controller. And it's, I just felt like I was, it was something I was missing out. My father was in the RCMP, so the idea of serving was, was really appealing. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And uh, so and you did you graduate RMC? I did not. No, I okay. went back. I came back here to Moncton to finish uh, my undergrad. OK. And so when you went back in, uh, you were you had graduated from university. And did you enter the forces at the officer rank, Corinne? I was. I was released as a, as a captain. Ah, okay. So tell us now, I'm, I'm looking at the front, the very first line of this article you wrote about sexual misconduct and so on in the forces. And let me just quote you on the radio. As a female veteran observing reports of sexual misconduct among senior Canadian armed forces officers, I have been forced to make sense of my own experience. So tell us a little bit about, because you in, in the article, you go on to say that during your time in the armed forces, Corinne, you actually only formally filed one complaint. That is correct. Um, so to answer that first line, my, uh, so when I started my PhD, my research interest, and it still is, was on the veteran transition to civilian life, so that career okay. transition. Mm -hmm. um, that is difficult. And I'm, you know, taking classes and then, well, I'm sure we're, we're going to get to the psychic prison, but yes, um, as I was uh, studying and then things, you know, in the news, um, those allegations, just top senior officers, um, it just brought me back to ask myself the question, like, what is going on? You know, as a more of an ac academic now looking in, because mm -hmm. I'm no longer in the force looking in, um, all these questions, like, why is this happening? <laughs> why um, are people now speaking up? And then, and then I recalled all these instances that I didn't do anything. I don't consider, just for the record, I don't consider myself as a victim. Mm -hmm, as much right. as I consider myself as a bystander. And uh, it's, well, it's that's in it. that capacity that, um, it's in the capacity of bystander, keeping secret and not doing anything that was troubling to me. Yeah, well, and again, let me just quote from your article here. The accepted sexual behaviors in the forces can have severe consequences beyond harassment. And like everything else, like everyone else, pardon me, I went along with it. I entered a pact of secrecy and became part of the problem 
by being a bystander. And that's what they expect. Those who are abusing power expect no participation from the sidelines. They expect everyone to be bystanders, don't they? I think they accept it at the unconscious level. I don't think senior officers or any offenders take for granted or assume that no one's I think all of that is happening at the unconscious level. It's just what you do. Mm -hmm. Um, It's those invisible power forces that exist. But in reality, that's exactly what's happening. And I truly believe there are more bystanders that there are victims and offenders together. Right. I I would accept that without even questioning it, just based on the raw math of the population of the armed forces. But, you know, you point to some recent examples, Corinne, and that's what I think has got a lot of Canadians more upset and more aware of our armed forces these days than perhaps ever before. And it goes back, it's fairly recent, it's all within the last 12 months or so, when we've seen senior officers, in fact, the chief of defense staff, the, the top soldier in the country, and other subordinates of senior rank being accused of sexual impropriety and misconduct and one and and of course then it get it gets down to uh, uh, who's investigating this well they're investigating themselves at which point after years and years of watching the forces investigate themselves and produce zero results uh, and now we see the senior ranks being uh, accused quite publicly in a way, I guess that's maybe the difference, Corinne, now is the degree of public allegations, probably at an all-time high. Would you agree? I would. And I would also assume, (laughs) I don't know for facts, I haven't done the research, but I would assume that that's just the tip of the iceberg. Right. Right. And again, though, uh, I think what's frustrating from the point of view of, of the of the taxpayers and those who the military is designed to protect is what is going on. And then recently, and I'm now talking within the last few weeks, for some mysterious reason, the government of Canada has decided to dissolve the committee investigating impropriety and sexual misconduct in the forces. What have you heard as the rationale behind that? I haven't heard much um, about it. I am an optimist. (laughs) I would like to believe that they're coming up with a different plan. Um, I think what they dismantled, maybe it was again the same process of looking the military, looking at itself, which doesn't work. Uh, Fish and water doesn't know it's in water. Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. uh, um, So I I haven't heard anything. Um, I don't know. And they don't seem to be talking much about it either. Uh, But I would like to think that they're working on something needs to happen. Mm -hmm. And I don't think anybody would disagree with that. Uh, You're quite right. And again, those of us sitting on the sidelines watching all of this are just, I think, stunned as much as anything else that that it continues to to, uh, advance at at apparently the degree of of, uh, of misbehavior that seems unabated. And I want to go back to the article for just one more line, Corinne, and, and have you flesh it out for our listeners. Both women and men participate in these behaviors. It feels as though it's widely accepted so much it borders on being encouraged. The accepted sexual behaviors in the forces can have severe consequences beyond harassment. And then you talk about becoming a bystander, but it's the line both women and men participate in these behaviors that might be a little 
um, revealing, I suppose, for some of our listeners today, because Corinne, many people, many Canadians think of the forces and that attitude as, quote, the old boys club. So automatically, if you're not an old boy, then you're likely to become a victim. And you're saying, no, 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 because this is this works both ways. Both women and men participate in these behaviors. Uh, flesh that out for us. Tell us what you mean. So, yes, um, exactly like you said, I, you know, because of the differences and what we hear, it's always the men. <laughs> um, well, a lot of the victims are women um, mm-hmm. by nature. But to go back to the what you said, the old boys club, um, you, as a female, uh, you may want to become one of the men to be in that club. Mm-hmm. And so when when women try to be in this literature on this, um, where f- to to fit in because it is an old boys club, because the military has strong rooted history of male homogeneity, um, women tend to want to become like men, and so uh-huh. you end up adopting the same types of behaviors. Ah, okay. So yes, I do stand by that. <laughs> okay, and, and are there, I would imagine, uh, again, that there might even be examples of, of uh, uh, women in positions of authority uh, with several strikes, stripes or pips uh, being in a situation where, uh, like a male senior officer, they would harass uh, those uh, subordinates around them. Uh, it's, it's, it's possible that it, it works uh, right across the, the board then. It is. Um, and I've had, I mean, since I wrote the article, I've had a lot of, a lot of comments and okay. I would say by a lot of the bystanders, but I've had a few, a few female um, who have said, you know what, like I've been an offender. And, mm. and so, yes, this does happen. Um, there's also um, a woman that might get into a relationship, a relationship with a superior might gain an advantage career-wise, for, for example. Right, right. So right. There's, there's that, that too, that can happen. Right now, we're in conversation with Corinne Gelina. Mademoiselle Gelina is a 10-year veteran of the Canadian Armed Forces, was an officer in the Air Force, an air traffic controller by profession, uh, and is now a student at St. Mary's University in Halifax, uh, working on her PhD uh, with respect and and with a focus on the transition of veterans uh, from the forces to civilian life. And uh, Corinne, we're going to talk about something called a psychic prison in just a moment. But back to this history of, uh, of uh, impropriety and, and misbehavior in the Canadian Armed Forces, we've witnessed quite quite a, a parade of uh, allegations. And we, in fact, about, what, five years ago now, the Supreme Court, uh, one of the justices of the Canadian Supreme Court uh, wrote a, pro- a report on misconduct in the military, following which there was something called Operation Honor established to eliminate harmful and inappropriate sexual behaviors within the forces. That was five years ago. Uh, it was it, it's over now, actually six years now, uh, it, it ended, and I think it could successfully be described as a bust. What the heck happened? Um, what I, I think Operation Honor did help uh, some victims to speak up. So I, I think okay. it did do a little bit. I think it had the potential to do a whole lot more. Um, why? I think... I think Operation Honor was a bit of a band-aid, if you wish, on the problem. Um, 
and we, we can clearly see, I mean, we, we knew the issues were there and all Operation Honor was, was another set of rules. And I'm asking myself, you know, we are military members. We are taught to follow orders. Mm-hmm. An order came out, yet we opted not to follow it. And so as an academic, I'm asking, I want to ask myself why. Right. Well, you were in the forces during that whole Operation Honor phase. When did you leave, by the way, Corinne? When did you step uh, down from the forces? I was medically released in 2016. Okay. So you were there for the start of Operation Honor then. Uh, I was, and that's why... Sorry, Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, that's why I call it a force-feeding approach. uh, Because I remember getting these little cards that we had to put uh, as part of our uniform in our pocket. And I remember looking at some of my colleagues looking at this card and say, this is not going to do anything. Mm. (laughs) You're force feeding us. And I, I I wasn't an offender, um, but I was like, this isn't, isn't going to stop anyone. So you, you called it a bandaid. Yeah. You called it a bandaid. So this, this would then perhaps be uh, something that the politicians would have imposed on the forces so they could be seen to be doing something, regardless of how effective what they were doing was or wasn't, at least they could be seen to be doing something. Is that what it felt like inside the forces? I think the intent was good. So, I mean, I, I'm, I wasn't there, so I can't really speak up. I was, I was a junior officer. Um, I, I like to think that the intent was good, but all they all it does, is, it's like looking at a problem from, and that's why I say like it's, We've, lo- we've been looking at the problem on a mechanistic, like a mechanical, like a machine or mm-hmm. a culture. And we looked at it, but all you can see is the surface of, of the problem. And I think Operation Honor tried to mitigate that, but it didn't solve the deep-rooted issues. So I, I, don't, I think the intent was good, but it didn't really address the, the core of the problem. And the core of the problem or the deep-rooted issues are so deep and so intrinsic to the mentality of the forces. You refer to that, uh, you, you quote a theorist named Gareth Morgan, but you refer to the mindset of the Canadian Armed Forces in some ways, Corinne, as a psychic prison. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so that's a metaphor that uh, Gareth Morgan, um, the theorist, um, is, it's one of his eight metaphors. Uh, one of which is uh, looking at an organization as a, as a machine, like I've already mentioned, another one as a mm-hmm. culture. But then he goes on to talk about, yeah, the psychic prison, which involves really the unconscious, the unconscious power dynamics that traps us. And you don't even know that you're in it. You don't know that you're trapped because it becomes part of who you are. Um, and I've had, uh, I've had a few people comment on that and tell me, um, you know, I grew up in a military family and then I joined the military. And mm-hmm. so I'm realizing that I don't know anything other than the military. <laughs> like, I don't know how to be outside of that institution because it's been ah. part of my life. Right, and, and you referred to yourself earlier uh, as a bystander and many others, uh, people who are not aggressive, people who don't misbehave or, or, or break any of the codes, uh, but who observe these improprieties going on around them and do nothing about them. So therefore, they are, as you were, bystanders. To be a bystander in the military would, uh, given the, what you're talking about, would that not represent uh, a, an inmate? 
in the psychic prison? Exactly. Um, and the, I believe that we're all part of that prison with different roles, but we're all part of it. And as bystanders, we are perpetuating the problem by not doing anything, by keeping the secret, the inaction, the unconscious. And I'll, I'll, I don't think anybody out there wants to harm anyone. This, I'm talking about this at an unconscious level that we just sure. we protect the institution. We protect the mission. Well, you, you talk about in your piece, and I should mention again to my, uh, my listeners, I'm assuming that they've been listening since the beginning of the interview, and that's not necessarily the case. Corinne Jelena wrote a piece at theconversation.com called Sexual Misconduct, Abuse of Power, Adultery, and Secrecy. What I witnessed in Canada's military. My gosh, that's a mouthful, isn't it? And you talk about uh, uh, some of the, uh, uh, you give specific examples. For example, as I mentioned earlier, when you were a junior officer, you actually only, in terms of being the victim or the subject of some uh, misconduct, uh, which happened to you more than once, but nonetheless, you actually only once ever filed a formal complaint. Why did you not go beyond that when uh, subsequent events happened? Tell us about the fallout, as you describe it in your piece, about the person you filed, filed the complaint against who ended up bragging later that the complaint had been scrubbed from his file. Yes, and it just so happens that that individual did not know I was one of the, or, or wasn't aware that I'm the one who brought the allegations to start with. And maybe that's why he bragged about it. Not sure why anyone would brag about that. But yeah, so I went to my supervisor with an allegation. And I remember my supervisor telling me, you know, thank you for saying something because he had been witnessing things, but because he wasn't a victim, he didn't do anything about it. Right. So he thanked me. Um, following that, uh, five other people came came forward. And the punishment was a letter of apology. That was the punishment. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I was just like, oh, okay, I mean, chain of command, that's what, you know, my boss said. And so you don't, that was kind of it. And I'm like, okay, well, as long as he doesn't reoffend, And he didn't in that, in that posting, he, he didn't. And it's okay. only years later when I ended up working with him in a different unit, different base, that he started bragging about the fact that his, his file had been uh, swept clean. Mm, and so I was angry, <laughs> very angry. Uh, I went at that time. I went to my new supervisor, told him the situation, what had happened, and then I was told, "Well, that was in the past. If it happens again, we'll deal with it." Mm. And that was it. That, that was, was the it. end of my. <laughs> that that was it. At that point, I just decided to take things into my own hands and make sure it didn't happen to me, um, and try to protect people that worked for me. And, and again, one more example. We're, we're sort of running out of time here, but I, I want you to get to this example of the Navy lieutenant uh, who uh, was involved uh, with, with uh, one of the allegations against the CDS. And she says she's bothered that someone in the position of trust, such as the uh, CDS, the chief of defense staff, um, uh, she says, quote, this what uh, that what due process we have needs to remain fair and everybody, including me, should have due process which of course is absolutely true. But you also point out that this net lieutenant is protecting the institution by saying that. How? Yeah, so to me, when I was listening to the uh, interview, and I, I'm, I'm very happy that she came forward. Um, I can understand why. I mean, no one wants their private uh, situation up 
out in in the open. But when mm-hmm. she said about you know, when she said when she quoted exactly that weak ethic values, I'm like that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make any sense because that due process has failed over and over again, mm-hmm. and, and we've got proof of that. But then at the same time, for me, it was a a clear manifestation of that protectiveness of the fact that you know we got to protect the institution. The institution is good. The institution. You know, it's going to protect me. So by, you know, that due process, she feels um, that that she's going to be protected or at least, you know, that it, it, she'll have a fair, um, I don't know if it's going to be a trial, but a fair process. Right. Uh, so, so to me, it's like, okay, she, that, to, that, that was an indication that she was in that psychic prison. She was trapped. Uh, final question to you, Corinne, and it's great to have you with us today. A permanent change will only be possible once we understand the unconscious level and the invisible forces imposed on members of the Canadian Armed Forces. This is a conclusion that you reach in your article. Are you optimistic? Because you've identified yourself many times in this conversation, Corinne, as an optimist. Are you optimistic that at some, perhaps, unidentifiable future point, there will be a better balanced Canadian armed forces? I am an optimist. Um, I, I still have positive, uh, ex- I have a positive experience in the military and great opportunities. Uh, I just, and if anybody out there is listening, I just feel like we need to address this problem from a different angle. Mm-hmm. What's been done so far has been, um, very ineffective, a bust, like you said. A bust, and indeed. So, and so to me, we need to get to those answers. They're there. We just need to dig deep. And until we do that, we can't come up with a solution, a long-lasting solution. Corinne St. Mary's University, Halifax, Nova Scotia. Thanks so much for this. Uh, the Peace Friends is at theconversation.com. Uh, one of the Toronto Maple Leafs fans uh, who will be paying attention to the game, no doubt, later on today, joins us from Toronto right now. He is post-media columnist Brian Lilly, whom we find this morning in a, in a park off Young Street in downtown Toronto to talk about a few things, not the least of which is something called True Anon. Brian Lilly, good morning. Welcome back to the program. Oh, good to be with you again, Sterling. Yeah, just out with the dog this morning, enjoying what is a beautiful Sunday and trying to get a bit of fresh air. We're not allowed to do a lot else here right now due to uh, due to COVID, but you can still enjoy outside. Indeed. I'll talk about true and on in a minute, but uh, let's just stick with Ontario and COVID this morning uh, because your restrictions again today, Brian, much more um, uh, severe than British Columbia, uh, and yet uh, we have uh, uh, reports this morning of, of gatherings and so on on another beautiful weekend here in Metro Vancouver, as you might expect. But what we don't have in British Columbia was uh, this, this strange turn of events in which the premier of the province gave police additional powers to um, enforce COVID restrictions, and most of the police departments in the province said, well, no thanks. That was strange. It was strange. And, I, and I'm actually disappointed that uh, Premier Doug Ford went there in, in terms of giving uh, police these powers. But I, I've been saying for a long time that we should be closer to the approach that British Columbia has taken, which is not a hands-off approach. It's not an open-everything-up approach, but it is a lighter touch in terms of COVID restrictions. And you right. know, for the most part, you guys have similar numbers to us, often better numbers than we have. 
on a per capita basis. And so I've said we should look to that. But what's ironic about this is that many of the people, especially over at the Toronto Red Star, uh, who were outraged at this, the doctors who appeared on TV denouncing this, they have been calling for this for months. Some of them are still saying, well, it's good that Ford walked this back, but what we need now, and then they, you know, one of them, that Dr. Andrew Morris, put out a list. It includes restricting travel inside the province. How Mm -hmm. do you do that without giving police these extra powers? Right. So all of these doctors have been calling for a Melbourne-style lockdown for months. And several media outlets have run stories on how this is the successful model that Ontario should follow. Well, what did Melbourne do? They shut parks. They shut golf courses. They shut any outdoor recreational activities. And mm-hmm. they gave police the power to stop you in the street. Right. <laughs> so you can't call for this for months, which they did and I did not, and then be outraged when the premier goes there and say this is the wrong way. And by the way, if I listen to Ford's most ardent critics... Uh, apparently COVID-19 can be solved by one simple action, forcing employers to give paid sick days. We've got a federal program for this right now that your premier, John Horgan, actually, was the champion of, and Mm -hmm. he pushed for it in the premier's meetings. The other premiers got behind him, negotiated a deal for paid sick days from the federal government. Right. Uh, But, you know, as I listen to these critics of, of, of how the Ford government is handling it, nothing critical in, in different ways. They seem to just keep coming back to, if we had paid sick days, this would go away. No, it won't. <laughs> it will not go away based on that. What will, what will make it go away are vaccines. And right. we simply do not have enough of those here in Ontario. You do not have enough of them in British Columbia. Um, and, and in fact, earlier this week, I was calling for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to stop handing out vaccines to the provinces on a per capita basis and redirect uh, a good share of the supply that is right now going to Atlantic Canada or the north and send it into hotspots in British Columbia, Alberta and Ontario. Brian, the, uh, the the vaccine rollout has been, uh, well, where I believe, depending on who you're reading, we're either 44th or 50th in the world in terms of success rates with vaccinating the population. At least Mr. Ford, in his frustration with trying to get something accomplished, did finally have something to say about uh, basically what a lot of us already know. What this really boils down to, folks, is there simply isn't enough vaccine? No, there, there isn't. Uh, it, and, and this does tie into the Truanon thing that you want to talk about in a moment. But yeah. Justin Trudeau supporters will tell you that there are plenty of vaccines and Canada is doing a great job vaccinating the population, except for all those nasty conservative premiers. They, they sometimes somehow always leave John Horgan out, uh, who I think is doing a, a, a good job. But it, they, they just want to pick a political fight with Doug Ford. So apparently Justin Trudeau is doing a great job of getting vaccines into Canada. It's just that Doug Ford won't give them to anyone. Uh, both well, of those statements are false. 
And I suppose, and this leads us to Truanon, because uh, what's happened is that the, even though Canadian media, frankly, Brian, I think is doing a reasonably awful job of reporting the reality of the vaccine rollout in terms of we don't have enough. And that is the bottom line every day that needs to be reinforced. Um, Despite all of that, uh, the vaccine, the slow nature of the vaccine rollout and per capita vaccination success has, well, captured the attention of media outlets around the world. And they're, in fact, doing a better job of reporting on the deficiencies of the Trudeau government than is the domestic media. And I would agree with that. Um, Unfortunately, uh, I have watched too many times as the Trudeau government reannounces vaccine shipments that we've known about for a long time. And Mm -hmm. then that's reported as if we're getting new vaccines. One, they're not new vaccines. Two, we're not going to get them for months. Uh, Every single awful decision that premiers across this country have to take in terms of uh, who gets vaccines, uh, who's a priority group, restrictions that they have to put in place. Uh, All of those awful decisions are the result of the fact that we simply do not have enough vaccines to take care of our population. I'm not saying that everything would go back to, to normal tomorrow if we if we got a huge shipment and could look after everyone. It would still take time. Mm-hmm. But the fact that Ontario has to go into another lockdown, the fact that Ontario, British Columbia, and Alberta are bearing the brunt of this third wave is the result of Justin Trudeau's failure on vaccines. Um, the UK, despite what Prime Minister Trudeau said, is not going through a third wave because they were successful in their vaccine program. On mm-hmm. May 16th of last year, the Boris Johnson government made a big announcement that they were setting up a vaccine task force. They put people from business, uh, from the, the financial side, the industrial side, vaccine makers, uh, health bureaucrats, and the military together and said, we need you to come up with a plan and it needs to be made in Britain. There needs mm-hmm. to be a domestic Uh, production component of this that same day is the day that justin trudeau first talked about the deal with can sino the chinese pharmaceutical company to make a vaccine here right that deal fell apart three days later we didn't find out that it fell apart for months and they didn't go and and find other supply um the uk government has been a success they in terms of the vaccine they are moving towards a normal life. They are not experiencing a third wave like much of the world is. And the fact that we are is because uh, our federal government failed us on this. Brian Lilly is our guest, also enjoying a beautiful Sunday morning, apparently in downtown Toronto. Today, it is very, very similar to downtown Vancouver. Lots of sunshine and warm temperatures and people getting outdoors. Uh, Brian is with us uh, to talk about a few things, not the least of which is a column he wrote recently under the headline, Jake Tapper calling Trudeau supporters Truanon is perfect. Brian, give us the background of this Truanon story. Well, you you kind of referenced how it started earlier when you said that international media was doing a better job of calling out Justin Trudeau's uh, failure on the vaccine front than many in our domestic media were. And Mm. so just over a week ago, the Wall Street Journal ran a piece uh, about Canada's slow vaccine rollout. That led to Paula Newton, who has been with CNN for 15 years uh, working out of Ottawa, 
uh, doing a profile piece last Monday on Jake Tapper's show, The Lead. That this was also covered by the Atlantic, by the Washington Post, by mm-hmm. so many Bloomberg, e- 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 Bloomberg, Forbes, yeah. e- even you know. But you know, I mentioned like the, the Washington Post and New York Times and the, the Atlantic. These are progressive, liberal leaning media stalwarts, and they were calling Trudeau out. So once Tapper's uh, video uh, saying that Canadians deserve better started circulating, he was attacked on social media by Trudeau supporters. And, you know, I have long said that Trudeau's online supporters are much like Trump supporters uh, in this way. Neither supporters of both men will not accept that their leader can be criticized on anything, even when the criticism is warranted and valid. If if you did that to uh, Trump supporters, they just came at you with everything. There was nothing right. that Trump did that was wrong to them. Mm-hmm. And the same goes with Justin Trudeau. So Jake Tapper is watching all of this, and he dubbed it in a tweet, Truanon, a takeoff of QAnon, who were Trump's most ardent supporters. Right. And as a friend put it to me, they, he, they said, Tapper has been putting up with the Trump guys, the QAnon guys, and the abuse from them for years. After one day, how bad did it have to be with the Trudeau guys for him to notice that they were angry and that they were just like the QAnon? Well, that's how bad it is all the time. If you call out uh, Justin Trudeau on anything, I, I call out Doug Ford. And, and look, I lean conservative, but I call out Doug Ford all the time. I don't mm-hmm. get the flack that I get if I call out Justin Trudeau. I, I have been covering politics for a long time. I've, I've, you know, back to the Kretchen days. So Kretchen, Martin, Harper, you know, social media has been around that long. The abuse you, will, you would take for calling out any of them doesn't match what you get from the Trudeau guy. So I thought it was mm-hmm. perfect when Jake Tapper dubbed them Truanon. I mean, it, it is cult-like. Uh, there's a messianic uh, element to this. And, and they just, nope, you can't say anything bad about our guy. Uh, the vaccines, we're, we're doing super with vaccines. It's just no. those darn premiers. Yeah, but Brian, uh, another reason, for example, uh, for, for uh, criticism uh, is the decision or perhaps the lack of strong decisions taken on flights into Canada. We have a problem this weekend with the Brazil variant here in British Columbia, perhaps more of that than anywhere else in Canada. Well, how on earth do you think the bloody Brazil variant got into British Columbia? It didn't walk here. It flew in on a plane from Brazil. Canada's uh, discipline at airports with respect to disallowing hotspots of passengers is awful. We're still allowing people to come in from all over the world. You know, and we had that here back in December with the UK variant showing up. And the government would just say, oh, no, everything's fine. We make people quarantine. And then the UK variant shows up in a nursing home about an hour north of Toronto. More than 100 people died. Yeah, because of that coming in right now, uh, both Vancouver and Toronto are dealing with dozens of flights coming in from Delhi. They've got the double mutant variant that we're worried That's about. Right. And the Trudeau government is not shutting down flights from there. They're not. I mean, they, they dropped the extra screening for the Brazilian variant that you guys are dealing with. 
saying, well, it's here already, so we don't need to do anything. Meanwhile, the prime minister is supporting and encouraging premiers to put in provincial travel restrictions. I'm not sure that uh, the premier Horgan has acted on those yet, but he was talking about it last week. And Trudeau said, yeah, that's a good idea. Now Ford's done it at the border with Manitoba, the border with Quebec. With Quebec, and, yes, and that's he, right. And he's, and he's supporting this. But he won't do anything on the international border. This has been a problem from the beginning. They are reluctant to do anything at airports. And that's where this, uh, you know, well, we drove a, a bunch of them in from the States. Let's admit that. Yes. But the initial cases all came from international flights from around the world, first from China, then from Iran, then Egypt, then Germany, and then the U.S. And Trudeau's always too late to the, uh, the game on this. So uh, the, uh, the notion now, however, uh, as, as America, it's very interesting that we're talking about uh, the, the restriction and the closure of Canadian airports just as the United States starts to fly again. Uh, Two million people expected to fly domestically in the United States this weekend again, Brian, as, of course, the vaccine, uh, the, the wider uh, range of vaccine and more vaccinated people uh, see are more, are more comfortable taking rides on planes. So they're uh, there. And it's interesting, too, also that the the cdc the center for disease control in atlanta here's a shoe on the other foot situation just this just a few days ago recommended the people of the united states at all costs do not go to canada this seems to be about a year ago that the smug canadian government was saying do not under any circumstances go to the united states shoe on the other foot much i think so oh, oh it completely is and to bring it back to true and on again um you know, the prime minister was asked about that by conservative leader Aaron O'Toole. And he stood up and told one of the lies that his true and on supporters will repeat ad nauseum. Trudeau said, no, that travel advisory has been up since March of last year. That's true. It has. But they updated it to say, even if you are fully vaccinated, avoid going to Canada. Yeah, yeah exactly. That, 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 that was not up there a year ago in March. So we've got a lot of problems and the origin of them, the ones that that all the premiers have to deal with, the origins start in Ottawa with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Absolutely. We didn't even get to the carbon tax in O'Toole. We'll have to save that for next time. Thanks for making a little time for us on a Sunday morning, Brian. Good to have you back on the show. Good to talk to you again, Sterling. It is his pleasure to welcome this next guest back to the program. We haven't spoken with Bill Curry from the Globe and Mail in quite some time. Mr. Curry is their financial columnist and specialist, and he, along with co-worker Bob Fife, the Ottawa Bureau Chief, conveniently wrote a piece for us in the Globe and Mail just a few days ago entitled, What to Watch for in a Long-Awaited Pandemic Federal Budget. So with a budget preview, Bill Curry, good morning and welcome back to the show. Good morning, Shirley. Thanks for having me. It's, it's great to have you with us, Bill. Let me, let me just quote the first paragraph here. After more than a year of emergency government spending at levels not seen since the Second World War, the Liberal government is ready to unveil its pandemic recovery plan. Uh, Bill, as you and Bob put this very, very comprehensive piece together the other day, did you at the end of it go, is this our wish list or is this what they're actually going to do? Um, no, well, they've been, 
We have the advantage of uh, Christopher Freeland uh, released a fall economic update in November, sure, late November. Yeah. So it was pretty prescriptive in terms of outlining at a high level what we should be expecting in the uh, next budget, which is now coming to, tomorrow. And I think, well, go ahead. I'm sorry, Bill. the The only thing the only thing that that has me and and a few uh, more than a few Canadians concerned is the choice of words to describe the pandemic. Both Miss Freeland and her deputy uh, Michael Sabia have described what we're going through a global flipping pandemic. Bill as a political opportunity. Now that scares a lot of Canadians. What do you think she means by that? Well, I think they've been trying to to balance that message, and I think they they went. I think they realized they went too far with some of their uh, eagerness, I guess, in in coming out with a recovery plan. Because I think we saw a lot of this in as far back as August, when it looked like the pandemic was petering out, mm-hmm. and Trudeau, and that's when Trudeau shuffled his finance minister and put Freeland in the job, and they were talking about we're going to have this ambitious plan to build back better, and it'll all be revealed in the. Um, in uh, the throne speech. And at that time, they were really thinking about kind of essentially repackaging a lot of the stuff that they had campaigned on in the 2019 election um, before the pandemic about uh, green economy kind of stuff and uh, new social programs and trying to try to repackage that as a recovery plan. So you've had this, this tension going on for a few months now where the liberals are eager to essentially deliver on their, their election platform Mm-hmm. pitch it as a post-pandemic recovery plan, but the pandemic just never <laughs> never peters out, so they had to kind of punt um, from the fall update, sorry, from the September throne speech. It still was premature to be talking about that, so they punted it to the November, late November fall update, and it's still, we were still in the heat of the, the pandemic. And now uh, we've got a budget time, and, and that'll be the communications challenge for them is that even now, April 19, tomorrow, it's still, uh, I think a lot of people would say, a little premature to be talking about recovery with uh, intensive care units uh, maxed out in, in several hotspots across the country. So no that's going to be the challenge for them tomorrow is how do they talk about all the, the fun things they're going to spend money on in the recovery while also talk about the fact that there's still a, a pandemic going on that's going to need money. And I, I think what you're getting at, too, is then what are we going to see here in terms of you know, when the bill comes due, how are we going to manage this over the long term, all the new debt that's being racked up? Well, there is there is that as well. But just in terms of, of, of buzz phrases, there was that political opportunity that the pandemic was seen as by senior members of the government. And also there's, and you've already used the phrase this morning, Bill, build back better. Now you're the money guy. You know that this is a phrase that Joe Biden is using. Some of the European leaders are using. This is a very popular Davos inspired theme. What do you think the Canadian government means by build back better? Well, it's, I think it's certainly a lot very focused on the environment. So I think uh, you can expect a lot of infrastructure funding that has a green focus Things like energy retrofits will probably be a huge part of uh, Monday's budget. Um, just um, and then also talking when they mean that they're also talking about kind of a new approach to social programs. So I think yes. we could see um, a national child care program or at least uh, steps towards that. So that's that's pretty clearly signaled. 
the, the liberals here in, in Ottawa seem to really like the Quebec daycare program where yes. there's a subsidized system and if you can get a space it's about a dollar eight thirty five a day. Um they uh, I think the federal liberals want to see something like that across the country, but I mean, as we put in the piece this was something, this is something the Liberals have been promising back since uh, Cretier's 1993 Red Book. And the Red Book was, it was kind of funny. When you look back at it, it actually uh, had a caveat on their pledge for national child care. It said, if we can get agreement with the provinces. Well, you know, 28 years later, that's still a big if. Uh, mm-hmm. These kind of programs the Liberals have been talking about for years, and it always runs into problems with the provinces who might have different priorities. Uh, you know, Brian Pallister has been pretty clear in Manitoba saying, you know, the first first thing is fix the foundation. We need uh, more money for health care. The basics of the health care system have uh, shown a lot of strain. So before you start adding new social programs, let's make sure the ones that we have are actually properly funded and functioning. No kidding. And Bill, if there's, if there's one lesson that every corner of Canada has been taught again during this pandemic, it's the inadequacies of our existing healthcare system. We know now from firsthand watching overload after overload, and now we're in our third wave of overloads. We know, we understand the deficiencies in our healthcare system more clearly now than perhaps we ever have before. And I think Brian Pallister has a point. Uh, the other part about all of this too, Bill, uh, is the national daycare program is seen by many as uh, essentially something to placate the NDP, uh, which has kept them in the Liberals' corner for necessary vote support during this minority parliament. And so this is this is the payoff. Yeah, it's it's one way to look at it. The, the strange thing about this is we've got a, a political dynamic here where the NDP has already said they're not going to defeat the government over the budget. So yeah. Um, I mean, yes, I guess the, the Liberals need the NDP votes uh, to to keep governing, but the NDP has already given their votes over. Their their view is that there should not be a an election in the pandemic, and, and so they're not going to, they, you know, they may criticize the budget, but they're not going to vote against it. So uh, compared to other minority parliament budgets we've seen, there's, there's less of that uh, drama over whether the government's going to fall immediately after. Um I mean, the Liberals have called, uh, been promising childcare for a long time. They True. have put money into it a few years ago. They they gave the provinces more money. It just it hasn't really developed into a cohesive national plan yet. Um, so we'll see. I you know the big challenge is the provinces. It just seems like a, a varying levels of interest in this this program. So it's very hard for the Liberals to come out tomorrow and say, you know, this is a finished product. Here's your national childcare plan and off you go. Especially with the, uh, shall we say, to be kind, animosity among certain Western premiers with respect to anything coming out of Ottawa. Bill, I want to talk about something that you and Bob Fife called the she covery budget in a couple of minutes. But just before we take a break, uh, we, we need to we need to talk at least a moment or two about debt because we are at an unprecedented level of national debt. I mean, just absurd numbers, and we also know that there's a a slush fund of between seventy and a hundred billion dollars already set aside to basically buy this election what do you expect them to say if anything about debt and debt servicing yeah well a lot of us are going to be looking very closely for uh, the language around that as will uh, you know the international monetary fund and and bond rating agencies will be very very interested in what the language is because 
we've seen over the last few years the liberals keep softening their language i mean normally the term economists use is fiscal anchor that's been things like you know what year are you going to balance the budget or right um the path of your debt to gdp ratio those are examples of fiscal anchors and in the the fall update it was changed to well, we will eventually have a fiscal anchor but instead we're going to have in the interim, we'll have fiscal guardrails, and that'll be things like the employment rate. So it's a lot fuzzier in terms of what is going on with the debt when you're talking about fiscal guardrails. So, yeah, um, you know, uh, Aaron O'Toole, the conservative leader, has suggested that we should have a deadline of, you know, within 10 years you balance the budget. The federal liberals have not talked about any kind of timeline, 10 years or 20 years or 15 years. Um, so we'll see. We'll see what's, what they have to say on that. Um the Liberals keep arguing that debt servicing costs are very low, and they're lower than they've ever been, and, and that's true. true. But, uh, you know, you'll also hear economists say, you know, once the Bank of Canada and other central banks stop gobbling up every all these government bonds, as they are doing right now through this quantitative easing program, uh, interest rates will start going up again, and that's going to mean more higher borrowing costs for government. So, well. you know, can we get out of this? these emergency deficits before interest rates go up and 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 if so then maybe things are manageable but if if not we're gonna have a real problem on our hands well no kidding because the more especially if you're talking about national daycare and any any other social programs and they are at least talking about several other social programs bill all of which of course will be paid for with borrowed money at today's historically suppressed low rates that's not going to last forever, at which case some of those programs that uh, will become uh, expendable, they'll have to go away. Yeah. Yeah, well, the, yeah, it's, it's cuts, cut programs or raise taxes. And there's a generational fairness issue, too. You know, we're, we're as a country, taking on all of this debt to get all of the present working population uh, through this. Yes. But who's paying for it? Well, it's, it's people who aren't in the workforce yet are going to have to pay for that. So is, is that fair? Or is, at some point, are we going to have to have decisions in the next two or three years in which the current generation at least chips away at the bill that we've run up here? Bill Curry is the Globe and Mail's financial columnist. He joins us from Ottawa today as we look ahead to the budget tomorrow. And uh, Bill, one of the things that, uh, for example, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business and their Vice President Laura Jones, who's on our show quite regularly, uh, are rather insistent upon, is that the government's new budget include, uh, an on. we've talked about this already, uh, an ongoing degree of support programs that perhaps... They hadn't anticipated uh, as spending. They were hoping, I think, to have more available cash for more pet projects. But really, they do uh, have to continue supporting, especially small businesses, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think uh, these programs are going to have to continue beyond what they had uh, initially planned for. Just, just it's pretty clear this, this uh, the lockdowns are continuing. So. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the, the wage support programs and rent support programs are among the most expensive elements of uh, of these emergency spending programs. So that's going to throw off, I think, the, the budget forecast for the, the current fiscal year that we're in, kind of year two of the pandemic, probably be a little bit more expensive, even though the growth forecasts are, are improving compared to when they sure. were thinking uh, what they would be in November. It's looking, the, the forecasts have been stronger. So there is that balance. Um, we did report in our piece that uh, sources are telling us that those programs will be extended through the summer, the, the wage and rent support uh, program. Right. So I think uh, 
small business people looking for that. Uh, there, there should be good news for them on that. Um, we'll see what the details are, but that's the signals that we're getting. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's definitely key for them. Bill, one of the things that you've mentioned already is not likely to be very prominent, if at all, in the budget is taxes. Uh, we talked about debt and this horrific debt that we're in, likely to be augmented by even more pile-on debt tomorrow. Someday there will be a reckoning for all of this, and uh, your children and my grandchildren are going to be the ones called upon to settle the score. So, uh, uh, it, it, so we know that this the only way to pay for this is increased taxation and yet it's an election budget they want they want us to vote for them so they won't tell us how much they want to up taxes to pay for their program so what do you see if anything by way of tax notices in the budget tomorrow will there be any tax increases at all personal gains for example anything that you hear sure yeah so what we reported is we're not expecting any major new measures beyond what they had signaled in November, but they did signal quite a lot of tax changes would be coming in the budget. And um, some of those things are um, uh, like for uh, large corporations. It'll be very interesting to see what's going on. It's, it's fascinating at the, the global uh, level of taxation. There's a lot of moving parts um, prior to Trump becoming president uh, the G20 um, leading countries had been pushing towards some kind of global deal on corporate taxation, and that kind of got shelved um, throughout the Trump years. But it's come back with a force with Biden coming in, and Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, was proposing just a couple weeks ago essentially a global minimum corporate tax of 21%, right. which then would allow the U.S. to raise their corporate tax rate to up to 28%. So, you know, U.S. is our largest trading partner where businesses are constantly competing with U.S. firms on corporate tax rates and that kind of mm-hmm. thing. So uh, how that all shakes out is going to be uh, very significant. And, and Freeland had said this budget would signal more detail on that. She'd said if, if there's no global deal, Canada might go alone, which could cause some problems with the U.S. So we'll see what's going to be there. There's supposed to be a few little tax-the-rich things uh, like stock option deductions. There might be some changes there. Um, We did report in that piece a couple things that are not going to be there, even though some outsiders speculated that might be coming. Um, When you sell your primary residence, your home, that capital gain is is not subject to tax. That's not going to change on Monday, even though some people thought it might. Uh, Similarly, when you when you um, sell stocks or your second home or your cottage, uh, that is subject to capital gains, and there's an yes. inclusion rate of 50%. It had been as high as 75% in the 90s, and some people have said if you're looking for revenue, you might want to change that, increase that inclusion rate. We're not expecting that to happen on Monday, but, I mean, down the line, I think that's probably something that the, the government might have to look at. And um, It seems like, you know, everybody seems to think we're going to have an election possibly this fall, so... I think politically, um, I think the thinking is they would probably want to wait until after the, the next election for those kind of decisions. We're, we're certainly getting lots of uh, unasked for advice from the C.D. Howe Institute and other economists essentially saying, like, this is not sustainable, and, and eventually something's going to have to give, either deep cuts or raising the GST from 5 to 7%. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, something like that is going to happen, but I don't think we're going to get that kind of frank discussion tomorrow. 
Bill, it's very popular. Not a lot of time left here, but it's very popular in some circles, this whole tax the rich stuff, uh, eat the rich, all of that sort of philosophy being applied. The problem as I see it, and I'm looking at it from a, a, a distance here on the West Coast, I just don't see enough rich people in Canada to tax to make any such mindset meaningful. I just, we just don't have, we have a few billionaires and probably a couple of hundred millionaires. That's it. I, I, I appreciate what they're, what they're trying to, to do or where they're coming from. I just don't see enough of a source there to, to provide any meaningful money. Do you? Well, and the challenge too is, uh, the few billionaires that we have in Canada have very good accountants. And so every time you, <laughs> every time the, the CRA kind of refers to it as whack-a-mole, you always see in the back of the budget that they tend to be so complicated, but the, it's kind of an interesting thing actually. Um, so every time there's a new tax, tax the rich kind of move within a couple of years, the rich have finally figured out a way to get around it. And then, sure. then the budget will have some new measure. And so it's, it's constantly chasing the money around and trying to find uh, to close the loopholes. But often accountants will say like they didn't even real some of them might not have even realized there was a loophole until it's been shut and announced in the budget. Like they'll say, Oh, I hadn't, I hadn't thought of doing that, but uh, there's all kinds of little schemes in the back end of the budget and the annexes that are shut down every year that uh, I kind of the accountants I too get a kick out right. of. Bill, thanks very much for this this morning. We appreciate your time on a Sunday. Say hi to Amy for me, and uh, we'll look to uh, tomorrow afternoon's budget speech, and perhaps you and I can get together in a couple of weeks and have a look at the fallout. Great. Thanks, Sterling. Hey, I got my ICBC rebate check the other day. Uh, well, not a lot, but it was more than the $2 one person received. Again, this is just an adjustment made by BC's insurer uh, to recognize the fact that most of us have driven a lot less in the last year. And uh, mind you, when I get my bill for my insurance next year, I'm still going to complain because it's still going to be more than anybody else in Canada pays for the car that I drive. And it's no big deal. So what are the insurance uh, companies of the future going to look like? Well, our friends at the Automotive Retailers uh, Association here in BC have a rather dire view of what some electric vehicles' uh, futures may look like, and they point to an innovation uh, recently from Tesla uh, with an in-house insurance package being offered to its buyers. Here to talk about it is the president and CEO of the Automotive Retailers Association of British Columbia. Always a pleasure to have Adrian Scoville on the show. Adrian, good morning. Welcome back. Good morning, Sterling. Thanks for having me back. Well, yeah, it's great to have you with us. Yeah, isn't it wonderful? Now, you're in Langley, so I imagine it's just as nice there as it is on the beach in White Rock when we talked to Rick last hour. It, it is. It's beautiful out here. And um, Actually, I was on the, the yesterday I was spent the entire day on the North Shore with the towers taking an advanced towing course where they actually tipped over a cement mixer onto its oh, side wow. and then safely brought it back up again without damaging the mixer or anybody doing it it's very very interesting to see it done wow and one doesn't think of the automotive retailers as having anything to do with towing companies but they are of course a very big part of of getting people and their vehicles around and fixed in our province adrian let's talk for a moment about this uh, proposal from elon musk and the tesla people uh because now they're they they do so much in-house already they're trying to 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 incorporate even more into being a tesla owner and as i understand it some of that new package will include uh, insurance for collision and other issues. Tell us more. 
Well, yes, that's they are what they term vertically integrating there. They have a network here of authorized collision repair centers, the only places you can go and get your Tesla fixed because they will not sell parts to anybody else. Um, so that's already eliminated um, part of the freedom of choice. Um, and also geographically, they, the furthest uh, place that they have so far outside of city core is in Kelowna. So if you're further than that, your vehicle will have to be towed at ICBC or, or your expense, depending on what it is. Um, one of the issues around that um, whole aspect of them locking down who does the work is they actually will not sell the parts to somebody else. So interestingly, if you sort of read what they're saying, they're saying, you know, delays in the, in the repair of vehicles and collision as though the collision industry is creating the delays. When mm. in fact, the problem was prior to them sort of locking up a network of, of, well, there's only about five, I think, shops actually authorized, hardly a network of shops authorized to do that. Um, the problem is getting the parts from Tesla. Um, sure. You know, they, there was huge delays. Now, we're using Tesla as an example, and I, I right. have to say it's, it's just an example. But they're, since they're so far ahead, they tend to blaze the trail a little bit. Um, so they, they are now saying, look, this is, you know, in order to get your car fixed more rapidly and service the customer better, um, they're, they're delving into insurance. So they, they will be offering that. They're already offering it in California and, and uh, a couple of other places in the U.S., um, but the concern there is you must remember that they know everything about you, including your weight, as we've sort of discussed in the past, um, due to the um, sophistication of the car. So the car knows exactly your driving habits, how far you drive, right. um, et cetera, everything about it. It also has got a built-in camera. So that camera will have a recording of the last thing that happened. So as far as a competitive edge is concerned, They've got all of that information in the car, and right. they're the one giving you your insurance and deciding on your premium. So there's a big concern there, especially as we've discussed in the past, that information isn't yours. Right. You, you have no choice. There's no opt-out, and they can take that information, whether you're insured by them or not, it doesn't matter. Uh, uh, let me, can I ask you that just on that specific matter, Adrian, it bears repeating, and I know I've asked you this in the past, but on the question of uh, most of today's new cars uh, have uh, an, an unbelievable amount of computers on board gathering amazing amounts of information, and they store that information and exchange it with the home base of where the car was manufactured. Uh, do the drivers of, say, Ford's or Chevy's have access to the data that is being stored in their vehicles, unlike Tesla drivers who do not have access to theirs? The answer is no, they don't. Um, uh -huh. At least they won't, put it that way. Um, it, this is, uh, again, Tesla is the one that is sort of bl blazing the trail. The, the, you know, for, for you as a consumer, they are the canary in the coal mine. They are, they're right, demonstrating okay. how far things can go. But the other uh, manufacturers most definitely are in the same uh, frame of mind with the fact that that data um, is theirs. It, they own it. And not only do they own it, but you do not. Uh, so that's the, the further thing. Even if you said, well, it's okay, it's my car, and take it to your favorite mechanic and say, here you go. You're, right. you're welcome to plug in. 
They won't be able to get all the information that the original equipment manufacturer has at their fingertips. And now we've got a few things in place that we're getting ready here in BC to try and smooth that out. Um, But certainly it's going to receive a lot of legal challenge along the way. Well, I was going to say, Adrian, my gosh, I mean, let's let's take Tesla as a good example because they're not cheap. So let's say you pop 60 grand on a Tesla or on any kind of car. I mean, there's, it's not hard to find a car cost 60 grand these days. And so you buy this car. Grand yeah. Challenge. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. In some days it is a challenge too. Is, but but let's, so you, yeah. you put out the big chips, you own this thing, you think, and then it comes time to something goes wrong. You need to fix it and you need to be able to take it to your trusted mechanic. The same person's been working on your vehicles for 20 years. The only person in British Columbia you actually trust. And you, you, you drive your vehicle into that person's shop and you say, okay, I have a problem. And they're going to look at you and go, I'm sorry, I can't help you. I can't connect my expensive gear that I paid for out of my pocket to your car because your manufacturer has designed things that I can't do that anymore. And then you're going to sit there and go, wait a second. Now, um, uh, this is my car. I should have the right to have my car serviced by anybody I choose. Well, one would assume, but uh, apparently not. Um, so that is going to be a big challenge. Um, we, we have a number of things here in, in British Columbia. Like, for instance, Auto mechanics, your auto mechanic, we discussed a long time ago, but is not required to be certified in order to work on cars. And we've been talking to government here, um, and they're really very concerned about that, about that fact. And we expect that there may be some change coming. Um, The second part is there's a thing called, well, your vehicle security aspects, essentially. Uh, The the authorization and clearance to access the security in your vehicle. So the original equipment manufacturers are very, uh, using that, I would say, I'll say they're concerned about it. They voice that as a concern. But what they're doing is putting more and linking more and more and more parts of the car to the security. So they're saying we won't release that for security reasons. But we are working directly, the Automotive Retailers Association, with a group in the U.S. that actually works with the the original manufacturers there to get those uh, vehicle security clearances for the Canadian technicians. So if you put those two things together, you have a properly qualified technician. You're required to be certified. And that technician has vehicle security clearances then there's no reason for the original manufacturers to deny them access to that information and ability to repair. So that's part of what we're working on right now to make sure that we can properly service your vehicle. Adrian, is it likely here in BC and elsewhere that the government is going to have to step in at some point and go, look, uh, if, if you buy the car and you spend whatever amount of money, you obviously not only own the title to the vehicle, you own everything associated with the vehicle, including the data the vehicle gathers and collects. Is that going to, are we going to have to have legislation that basically says just that? Yes. It, it, now, we, are, we have a voluntary agreement referred to as CASES, in that, an acronym, that the Automotive Retailers Association was a big part of developing here in Canada. So we have a currently a voluntary agreement with most of the big manufacturers. Toyota okay. and Honda are the only people who are not a part of, well, the only big ones not a part of, part of that. So it, and it works. The, as it sits today, you can see, you go into a shop and you can get your vehicle fixed. Right. Um, but, but that is under great threat now because, because of these technologies. And 
it, we led in by talking about EVs, and I, um, but this is not just EVs. This will be gasoline vehicles as well, although, of mm-hmm. course, they'll be largely phased out. But we're talking sure. about all, including heavy machinery, farm equipment, everything. They're all going to have very similar computer systems in them. Um, so it's going to be widespread as it does to the impact. All right. Well, Brian, I, I'm sorry, uh, Adrian, I'm going to have to leave it there because I'm fresh out of time. But I, I wanted to just take a second and uh, direct my listeners to your website, which is ara.bc.ca. That's the Automotive Retailers Association of BC website, friends, ara.bc.ca. And there you can learn more about their campaign, Your Car, Your Data, your choice for crying out loud. Adrian Scoble, thanks for this. It's important information for motorists in BC. We appreciate your time. Yeah, I appreciate being on and thank you for getting the word out. It is important to uh, motorists in BC. All right. Thank you, Adrian. That's ara.bc.ca. Brian Minter is joining us from mintergardens.com. Brian, welcome back. It's always good to have you on the program. Talk about a perfect day to get the gardening guy on the radio. Lots of people just dying to get out there and get digging today. Good morning. Hi, Sterling. Good morning. And, and yes, this really has to be an anomaly. I, I've never seen an April in my lifetime uh, that turns from winter to summer, skipping spring. And uh, because of that, um, we talked last time about the uh, importance of, uh, you know, don't put things out uh, that are tender until we get 10 degree nighttime temperatures. That's well, we're right. getting yeah. 10 degree nighttime temperatures and it's causing a bit of a panic and uh, nothing seems to make sense. I'm getting phone calls from friends across the province and saying, you know, I'm in, I'm in garden stores, that, you know, way up north here and people are putting tomatoes out. What's going on? Uh, well, uh, I, I think a little bit of patience, but um, but starting, I think there's a, a, a number of things that we need to take a look at uh, as we begin the, the gardening season. And I think okay. framing everything, starting is coming up this Wednesday is Earth Day. And uh, that is one of the, or I guess it's Thursday, the 22nd of uh, August, of April. Mm-hmm. The, um, it just seems like August, sorry. But the... Um, the thing is, I think everything we do in our garden right now has to be uh, one eye in terms of uh, the world around us and our planet and, and how we react in so many different areas. And I think that uh, should be the overall writing theme. And this year also, we've seen a huge shift, Sterling, in terms of it's not about us anymore. Uh, it's about nature and it's about all the pollinators and birds and mm-hmm. things that are so important to us. So when we garden, uh, we have to have that broader perspective. I think uh, as we as we move forward, and yeah. during, if it's if it's okay with you, um, you did ask if we could just run through just a couple of uh, areas that uh, folks perhaps should be thinking of. Uh, would that okay. be okay? Yeah, Brian. Just before okay, you get good. started on that, I have one question to ask you, and then I'll turn you loose with your uh, your April to do list. <laughs> okay. Uh, but you know, see, I'm with you, by the way, on on the whole business of the pollinators, and on the radio for many yep. many years. And I can remember you and I having this conversation on another network ten years ago uh, about yep. the yep. bees and how important bees yep. are to human beings, and how uh, we in BC are in a unique position of having so many of them, but they are a threat species and we need to take care of them what can we do what should we include in our gardening 2021 approach brian that is particularly conscious of and good to the bees i think basically three things uh certainly we have to keep in mind that in a, in a volunteer way 
both Mexico and the United States and Canada work together voluntarily. Uh, major uh, things like the uh, Canadian Landscape Nursery Association, the American Forestry Department, to create one million certified pollinator gardens across the continent. That is unheard of. And that put basically a million acres uh, back into habitat with uh, some, you know, this going on. So there's a, there's a genuine broader concern about this. And once we reach 10 degree uh, daytime temperatures, uh, the bees are out. They're uh, looking for nectar. They're looking for pollen. So mm-hmm. I think the number one issue is, is basically having a sequence, um, no matter where you live in British Columbia and when your season starts, of uh, plants that will provide both for the bees. For example, the winter flowering heather right now is is really important as a lot of our small fruits and fruit trees are starting to open up and looking for blossoms. So that's certainly a, a sequence of um, of pollinating plants, perennial. They could be trees and shrubs. They could be anything. So we have them from as early in the year as we can until late in the year. Uh, that That's certainly the, the number one thing. Number two, I think, is watching our uh, control and use of, um, you know, harmful pesticides. Uh, and I say, people say pesticides are bad. Pes- pesticides are simply a control, but yeah. it, and many of them are organic, which is fine. Mm-hmm. But anything harmful um, that would be toxic to bees, really be very careful uh, about that. And the third thing is, we never think of this, is uh, a source of water for them. In our, in our garden, could be a bird bath, which also is great for birds and so on. Mm-hmm. But uh, some where they have shallow water, a very shallow water, because uh, you know, in, in weather like this, where are they going to find water? And they do need that water. So, uh, and it must be shallow, just like a, a dinner plate, very very shallow. Uh, that. So those are the three things I think that are absolutely key in terms of uh, looking after the pollinators, which really uh, one third to one half of our food wouldn't exist without the the bees. No question about it, Brian, and thank you for taking the time. Now, you were about to just launch with a list of what we, on a beautiful mid-April weekend, ought to be thinking about in terms of prioritizing our gardening this season. I think it's not most important. It's the the actual aesthetics and beauty of our garden that we want to keep in mind. They do it does add value to our homes. There's no question about that. Mm-hmm. But first of all, lawns. Lawns have had a bad rap over the past number of years, uh, and now we're discovering that actually not not true. Lawns are great. We just have to approach them differently. And uh, at this time of year, um, we find a lot of moss in our lawns. We find bare patches where grass didn't grow. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, is not, not really in generally good shape. I think one of the most important things we can do if we haven't done is put lime on our lawns and our gardens too, for that matter. Bring the pH up so any natural nutrient uh, will actually have more benefit to all the plants. With the pH is in the range of 5 to 8, um, it, it really allows our plants to absorb and, and collect a lot of nutrient they normally wouldn't be. And the other thing is, where you have bare patches, right now is a wonderful time to overseed. And you just don't throw seed on the ground. You scratch it up lightly with a rake, put a bit of uh, good soil, just a quarter inch of soil, uh, and then put your seed on top of that and rake it in. And we must keep it moist, and especially in this weather, for about 10 to 12 days. That'll fill it in. But to make our lawns more environmentally friendly, uh, the new um, uh, attitude is putting white Dutch clover or the new micro clover in amongst our lawn seed. 
what it does is, number one, uh, fixes nitrogen in the soil so we don't have hmm. to fertilize as much. But number two, uh, when they do bloom, they provide nectar and pollen for the bees and pollinators. So that's kind of a, a really important issue out there right now. And uh, we hear everybody complaining about moss, and uh, quite frankly, the, the uh, folks who sell moss control uh, love that. But um, why does a golf course or a playing field where our kids play soccer have no moss? Because they planted one foot of pure sand, and they're aerating and putting more sand in all the time. And that's a secret uh-huh. to a great lawn, is aerating and sanding. So we have really good drainage uh, during the times we have so much rain. So look after your lawn, add the microclovers, make it environmentally friendly. Remember, an average-sized lawn uh, produces enough oxygen to keep uh, four people alive. So it, it's an important issue. Second Indeed. thing, is and Brian, just just before. We- Yes. Yeah, just, I just I want to interrupt you only to the to to the to, uh, to express my surprise. Uh, I, I'm with you on the liming of the lawn. It's something I've you know we we all do a lot. But liming the entire garden it hadn't occurred to me before. Uh, so, is there any part of the garden that or any plant area in the garden that shouldn't be limed, or is it good to just put it everywhere? Well, you, you did ask that one poignant question, which is very important. Uh, a lot of folks are planting potatoes right now, the early potatoes. Yeah. Uh, and if you have too much lime in the area where potatoes are growing and actually throwing uh, any type of compost or manure as well, uh, you can get scabbing on potatoes. So designate the area in your garden where the potatoes are going to go. No lime in that area. Great question. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I'm I'm glad I asked. I'm just surprised by 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 learning about did, how, yeah. how, how how important lime is in general. Brian Minter from MinterGardening.com is on the line. We're talking, of course, about just the absolutely splendid conditions we're living through right now and what one should do about, well, preparing the garden and taking maximum advantage of such an early spring. And as Brian, you said it basically went, or it felt like it went from winter to summer with very little spring. Is there anything we should be worried about in terms of it got so warm so fast? Uh, uh, is anything out of out of whack here? in terms of planting sequence? Yeah, it, it really is. And I think uh, the, the wisdom is to, to um, not uh, succumb to, uh, oh, it's summer, everything's going in. Uh, go back to the regular regime because this wonderful weather too will end. We'll get back to the rain and cold nights. You know, it's still seriously. April, isn't it? So uh, go go back to the traditional sequence of uh, how we would plant and, and still wait. You know, starting the long weekend in May, right across our entire country, is a time when most of the gardens, particularly the heat lovers like the cucumbers and tomatoes and peppers, that's when they traditionally go in. There's an absolute fanatic demand for tomatoes and peppers right now going in. And and I guess the big thing is please hold off. Uh, Don't let everybody else uh, really turn you away from your traditional thinking because uh, uh, you'll find out that very quickly uh, a lot of those heat levers will tend to go backwards when we get this type of weather. So patience and and, uh, following the sequence of how things should be planted uh, is really the, the one thing I think we all need to pay attention to. And yeah, don't be is, don't uh, be distracted never... by early summer and and let it throw you off. Basically, right? It, it is. And the other thing is uh, watering in April. Are you kidding? Uh, in our containers and so many of our plants, particularly on the south or west side of our homes, uh, we need to get out and water right now. The soil has become dry very quickly. Uh, some mm. plants are actually burning right now. Hydrangeas are pushing pushing out leaves, and if they're lacking water, they will uh, actually get burnt foliage. 
So a thorough deep watering in the areas exposed to the sun, but especially a lot of our containers right now, uh, we need to get out and check the watering in those. Those are the two things, uh, starting that I think we really need to, to be careful with. As we prepare our beds and uh, growing areas for the, the crops, the flowers and the crops of uh, summer 2021, Brian, what sort of uh, 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 addition to the current soil that we have? Is it necessary, for example, every year? Now, I mean, we fertilize as we go through, this, through the growing season anyway, but is it necessary at the beginning of each gardening season to bring in some new soil and mix it in with the existing uh, stuff that you have? Uh, that's uh, really the key question <clears throat> and bear in mind that uh, gardening has moved essentially from trying to be organic to being more sustainable and now the operative word worldwide right now is regenerative for years we've been taking so much more out of our garden out of our soils than we're putting back in so mm-hmm. regeneration right now is is really the key and uh, the other thing, uh, starting that it sounded foreign a few years ago, but now it's becoming mainstream, is no-till gardening. In other words, uh, we shouldn't have to go in with a fork or a shovel and dig it all up. Uh, and even in spite of the compactness we find with all the rains beating down on our soil over winter. And that means uh, simply a new approach adding a lot of great organic matter. Uh, Yes, we use our compost that we've done at home, uh, which is wonderful in this varying degrees of uh, numbers of bacteria and quality of it. But adding things like your mushroom compost um, and putting your your, your steer manures and so on, you'll find, but more importantly, some of the new products like your sea soils that have kelp and fish meal in them, that's all bacteria that's going to build up our soil over time. And in the operative, uh, I, I guess, thing here is the more you build up your organics on a traditional basis, the less you'll have to do that in the future. So in other words, yes, we put our fertilizers in. We really shouldn't be doing that. Uh, we should be building up our soils organically and attracting the worms. Uh, worms are just one of the most valuable um, commodities we can possibly have uh, in our soils right now. And, um, you know, there's a, um, a wonderful grower. He's a good friend of mine in Chilliwack. Uh, has several acres of just garden uh, that he sells these wonderful produce in, but he doesn't till. He's put so much much compost in over the years, building lots of fiber, and he doesn't till at all. And that that's really the, the big get your soil to the point where you can simply, um, you know, with your hand dig into your soil even now, and with your you know make a fist uh, of your soil like a little mud ball open it up, and with your thumb, it should be able to crumble nicely. Work your soil to that point, and um, that's that's really where we're going. So that's a preparation we need to be doing. And certainly so many folks have very heavy clay soil, and yes. uh, I think adding fir or hemlock sawdust or bark mulch into that soil until you can get that texture of, of you know grabbing this mud ball and opening up easily, get that soil texture so it's open and porous, uh, and then start adding your organics. That's really the way to go for the future. So the, the idea, the though, Brian, that I uh, wanted, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it, I was going to say there's in the other thing, too, I was just concerned about is so much of our um, fruit trees and uh, small fruits and uh, whatnot are now beginning to set bud and bloom. And uh, yes, I, I think they need special care as well when when we have a chance to talk about that. That's that's really crucial right now. 
Okay. Well, we'll talk about that next time. But uh, Brian, just just back to the no-till thing. We've only got a minute or so left, and I wanted to just explore Mm -hmm. that briefly if I could. So the idea is most of us right now just have empty flower beds or or, or, or fruit or or vegetable areas. And so you're suggesting that when we plant our flowers and our veggies for summer 2021, that we don't take the fork and uh, turn the soil over and dig down and give it a good flip and rake it and all that before we put the seeds in or the or the bedding plants you're just suggesting that we just go and just plant them where they are without a lot of soil prep before that's the ultimate goal and um okay. uh, danny oosterbrink this fellow was talking about you could do that in his uh, uh you know dozens of acres of this the, the whole area has been uh, prepped to the point where you can actually do that you can plant everywhere but uh, it's open porous loose and uh, full of microorganisms and full of right. beneficial bacteria. And that's really the ultimate goal. So speaking of Earth Day coming up uh, this Thursday, these are the key things I think we need to uh, do in our homes and our gardens uh, to change the whole nature of how we garden, being far more uh, regenerative and far more organic and environmentally friendly. All right. And Earth Day again, as Mr. Minter reminds us, friends, is this coming Thursday. You can learn lots more about Brian and his wonderful gardening tips at his website, mintergardening.com. Just a ton of wonderful information there. Brian Minter, always a pleasure, sir. We should do this probably right monthly through the summer uh, as we're going to get I'm going to get lots of emails and I'll have a whole bunch more questions for you next time around. Sterling, what a pleasure. Thank you so very much. And Joanne Dumas is with us. Joanne is the artistic director of Festival du Bois, which is coming up very soon in Millardville in Coquitlam once again. Joanne, good morning and welcome to our show. Good morning, Sterling. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Uh, now, Festival du Bois is now. I'm. I, I'm. Uh, I live in New Westminster, and uh, Festival du Bois is not far away from me. And we've been to many, many over the years. And I'm. What you, I bet you, Joanne, today you're just sitting here going, "Oh my gosh!" A, we're virtual this year and can't do this. And B, wouldn't this be just the best possible day for Festival du Bois? This would have been a really amazing weekend to all the festival. There's no doubt about that. But uh, life is such that uh, we have to go in another direction. So we've decided this year to hold a virtual event for all of the family. Okay, and now you're calling this one Festival du Bois à la cabane. Uh, translate like- that for, for our, our, our non-French-speaking listeners. Okay, well, in French, when you say I'm going to stay in the cabane, that means I'm staying in the house. The cabane being a reference to old cabins uh, in the woods and everything. Mm-hmm. And that's why we decided this year to call it Festival à la cabane, so everybody can stay in their house comfortably and uh, just put on the show virtually uh, on their computer and uh, get up and dance if they feel like it. Aha. Uh-huh. Dance like nobody's watching. And in this case, they won't be. <laughs> That's even more fun. Joanne, yeah. uh, give, us a, give us a moment or two uh, and, and take us back. How long has Festival du Bois been a part of culture here in Vancouver? And what started it in the first place? Festival du Bois started 32 years ago, and it was a celebration uh, to um, put focus on the people that came from back east. Ontario and Quebec to work in the wood industry in 1909. And that's why they called it Festival du Bois, Festival of Wood. Right. So uh, it started just as a, let's get together and celebrate this. And now it's been 30, 32 years that we've been celebrating 
uh, to crowds mostly in the month of March uh, every year. And uh, this, of course, is a tremendous celebration of all things French-Canadian. And mm-hmm. I'm, curi- I'm curious, can you identify the population, the size of the French-Canadian population in Metro Vancouver? Uh, because, of course, one, one thinks of being bilingual. Uh, and, for example, Joanne, and you and I both know that to be functionally bilingual in Metro Vancouver is to speak English and either Mandarin or Cantonese, just given the mathematics mm-hmm. of, of the bilingual population. But that's not to the exclusion of the fact that there are many francophones living in Metro Vancouver. How many? Uh, well, living in the greater Vancouver area, there's probably close to 50,000, 60,000. But there's a lot of francophiles. I mean, people that do speak French and are, uh, can, are truly French and English bilingual people. In BC, we we. We, we expect that there's a close to 300,000 people that are fully bilingual of two official languages of Canada. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And again, that's, that's a, a, a significant number, and uh, it, it can get lost uh, in a population, especially this far away from Quebec. Mm-hmm. Now, let's talk about the performers, the people that you gather to celebrate all things uh, French-Canadian for Festival du Bois every year. Are they British Columbia performers, Joanne, or typically do you bring performers out from Quebec as well? Well, normally we bring, uh, I mean, it's a really a 50-50 reality. It's local talent. Uh, we'll have different bands or different uh, artists that do things with children that we have, you know, our artists that do uh, clowning and a whole bunch of stuff, mm-hmm. dancing for children, children's programming. And then we have also artists that come from all the way from PEI, uh, uh, Maritimes, Quebec, Ontario. I mean, we try to uh, have approximately four to five provinces to be represented at Versailles Bois every year. And we do Indeed. it every year. Indeed. And one, one uh, must also include uh, New Brunswick. Canada is actually course, only official course. bilingual province. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. uh, there, and there are a lot of uh, New Brunswickers out here uh, and bilingual folks too. So now this year, we, because you're doing it virtually and we don't get mm-hmm. to go over to Millardville and, and enjoy the maple syrup in the snow. Hello, I missed that part. Um, yeah, really, eh? Yeah, the, uh, but, but when we're online watching Festival du Bois this year, has it been easier for you to attract talent, Joanne, given the fact that some of the performers who typically might have had to jump on a plane and come to Vancouver and, and, and perhaps interrupt their schedules otherwise can just stay at home, go online, and, uh, and perform and therefore be very available to you on short notice? Well, they were very available because, as you can imagine, with COVID, this has been a terrible year for, for performers and yes. for people that work with performers all the uh the people that are the the, the the electronic reality around performers there uh so it's been a challenge but they came on board uh with the challenge of uh giving us a small recording and what we wanted this year because it's not a real show uh like i saw some recordings of people that had a real real show and mm-hmm. it's kind of boring for them because artists do feed off the people that are Absolutely. in the room. So yes. we decided because of that to make it more like in the cabane type of reality. Let's have a kitchen party type of feel. 
and they came on board completely. They were so excited about that because it was a less um, less complicated reality for them to film a small show, like six, seven songs, and invite you into their environment. Mm-hmm. And it was easier for them. And it makes us, when we watch the show, the shows also makes us feel we're part of it. Instead of just being, you know, away from this big stage type of reality. Yeah. So I think we've made it happen. I'm look, I've looked at all the performances, of course, and we're very, very pleased. And I have to say, the artists, I received some great, uh, uh, you know, comments from them that they said, thank you so much for making this possible for us to start working again. Yes. And find a way to be able to showcase our our work and our talent and our music. So I'm very pleased with it. Indeed. And Joanne, this particular portion of our Sunday show has become our arts corner over the past year. And we have learned extensively at this time how incredibly frustrated performers across British Columbia are because you're quite right. There's nothing Mm -hmm. like an audience for a performer. And as Bill Henderson of Chilliwack used to say in that song, Reno, if there ain't no audience, there ain't no show. And so performers, performers really have to come out of themselves and perform mm-hmm. uh, to, to a, a, a static camera instead of a room full of enthusiastic supporters. So it, it does take a little extra effort. Uh, as far as the lineup for Festival Dubois goes, who are the stars this year? I think we have Florent Valant, who's really, really big in, uh, in Quebec. He's a First Nation Inu performer, and he's internationally known. Uh, Florent, there's... Uh, Jean Scaram, they're amazing. You have Lenny Galland, Lenny Galland, that's from PEI, with his new uh, new uh, fiancé. They have a duo, which is called Sirene et Matelot. And Matelot, okay. And, uh, <laughs> so it's really beautiful, and Lenny never, never uh, disappoints anybody. I mean, it's Texas music. It's the melody are just beautiful. So, and we have Justin Petit from here, from Squamish, who is an amazing performer with her band. She's with us again. We have Andy Illhouse, the artistic director of the Harrison Hot Spring Festival. Oh, okay. With Pierre Schreier. Pierre Schreier is an award-winning fiddler. Uh, they've done a duo thing, so it's really, really wonderful. They did great, Fantastic. great work. So there's a whole bunch of them. And for children, of course, there's the whole uh, old uh, reality for them that's back. We have uh, Frenchie the Clown that's there every year. Well, now he's invited kids into his apartment in Paris. Okay. And he's reading a book for them, so both in French and in English. So Excellent. there's all sorts of stuff that we thought about. So uh, I think families will find uh, that there's something for everyone. Uh, all right. And, and lots more information for our listeners, uh, Joanne. I'm just directing them to the website, Festival du Bois, all one word, festivaldubois.ca. The artistic yes. director of Festival du Bois is Joanne Dumas. And we wish you considerable success. And the start date of the festival this year, Joanne, is? It was Friday the 16th. So it's on until the 16th to the 30th of April. So you have two weeks to watch everything. And Wonderful. there's recipes also eh, for tortilla and sugar pie, should you want to bake one. And Wonderful. Have show. a tremendous festival, Joanne, and thanks very much for joining us this morning. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.